And so we're going to continue our time together, um, worshiping and studying the book of Philippians. Um, and uh, so we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can turn them there. Um, and then we will jump right in, pick right up where Pastor John left off, ending with verse 4 last week. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray uh, right after I read the text for us this morning, and we'll just dive right in. How's that? Philippians chapter 4, picking up in verse 5, text reads this way. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, by thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and had seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Gracious God, we, Father, we come to you right now. Father, we, we recognize our, our real need for you, our real need for your spirit to open our eyes so that we can see your word, open our ears so that we can hear it, and our minds to, to comprehend it. And Father, transform our hearts in such a way that we can not just be hearers of your word, but we can be doers. And we can take this practical application, these imperatives, Really a, a list of things to be thinking about and to, to challenge us with. So Father, I pray that you would take this and encourage us, and exhort us, remind us of the hope that we have, which is in Christ. And Lord, we ask all that in Christ's name. Amen. Many of you have likely heard about Corey Ten Boom and her sister uh, Betsy. The Tim Boom sisters were Dutch Christians who worked with their father and other family members who helped uh, Jews escape um, the Nazis during the Holocaust of World War II. In September 1944, the Tim Boom sisters were caught and arrested and deported to the Ravensbrück uh, concentration camp in Germany. Miraculously, the sisters were able to smuggle a Bible into the camp. And, and, and in this Bible, they had passages like this underlined that they were able to focus in on from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It says, Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. In spite of the fact that their bunk room at Ravenbrook was terribly overcrowded. It smelled like soiled straw and was infested with fleas. Betsy began to pray. She gave thanks for their shared bunk, their contraband Bible, their crowded quarters, and, and even the fleas as she's documented. This was too much for Corey. 
uh, who said she could not do such a thing. She can't thank the like can't bring it to her to, to thank the Lord for even the fleas. But Betsy insisted, so Corey gave in and prayed to God, thanking him for even the fleas, even though she couldn't understand it. So how in the world were these Christian women able to thank God for everything? Even their horrifying circumstances. And this was only the case, this can only be the case, because they had found their peace that transcended their circumstances, no matter how good or how bad or how horrific they might have been. Over the next several months, Corey and Betsy realized that the guards, they never seemed to enter the barracks because of the fleas. They didn't know that at the time, but, but this meant that the women were not assaulted, it also meant that Corey and Betsy were able to, to hold open Bible studies and prayer meetings in, uh, in, the, in the heart of this Nazi concentration camp. Through this, countless numbers of women came to faith in Christ. And only at the end did they realize why the guards had left them, had left them alone and would not enter into their barracks. In our passage this morning from Philippians uh, Paul is going to tell us how um, to, to get how how to get this kind of peace that the Timboon sisters had. He's going to begin by teaching us that this peace is possible for those who have been transformed by the gospel of grace, by the grace of God in the gospel. So look with me, picking up in verse 4. Paul says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Again, he's picking up on this reality that he's talked about in the beginning of chapter 4, that there are a couple of ladies who are at odds with one another. They were quarreling. They were, they were in a disagreement. So he's picking up on this, uh, this, this theme uh, of what it means to live in unity, live in peace with one another. And so the word behind reasonableness has been translated in many different ways. I love what William Tyndall says in his 1525 translation. He says, let your softness be known to all men. And that idea is very appropriate. The King James actually renders it moderation. And the ESV has reasonableness. And I'm convinced that the best rendering is let your gentleness be known to everyone. Having a gentle, uh, having a gentle forbearance with others it gets right to the idea. It's the opposite of being um, contentious or, or self-seeking. Paul was enjoying the gentleness that comes from the character of Christ. That we see from passages like 2 Corinthians 10 where, where Paul appeals to the Corinthians by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Including his attitude towards those who reviled him and crushed him. And Paul is saying believers should display this gracious 
gentle spirit with one another and with the watching world. We need this spirit when we seek to reconcile with other people. We need a gracious, forbearing spirit. We need a willingness to give up our preferences and show grace to others. This call for graciousness is also important as we encourage the world with biblical truth. You know, we live in a time and in a society of moral revolution. So it's especially important when we're speaking on some of the most volatile issues in our culture right now. Namely, I think, the issue of homosexuality and same-sex marriage. Nothing creates more criticism and outrage these days than teaching or even saying that there has been a historical position on marriage between one man and one woman in covenant marriage. As we take our stand on such issues, we need courage. Yes, we absolutely need courage and boldness to have to trust the scriptures as being our guide for such issues. But it is vitally important that this truth is mingled, is surrounded, is fueled by graciousness. I don't know if you've never ever noticed the way I end a lot of services by way of benediction, where I talk about we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth from John chapter 1. And I always end with, go in His grace, go in His truth. Because the reality is, grace and truth, they're accompanied together. It is possible to be totally right and be absolutely wrong, if you know what I'm saying. You can be absolutely factually right and still, yet, in such a way, lose the edge of graciousness that should, we, should be, we should be known for as believers. So I would say, is your graciousness evident to your friends and family and neighbors and fellow church members? Are you known for your graciousness on your social media accounts? Maybe a better question is, do you even desire to have that character quality? What do you want to be known for? Is it fame or success or beauty May we all aspire to have a reputation as individuals and as a church for being gracious and gentle in our dealings with both those inside and outside the church. So this brings me to the first point that I think is, is important that we see this gospel transformation happening in a group of people. And so gospel transformation people, transform people are reasonable, soft, tender and gracious people. The reality is when we see and recognize the grace and the tender mercy of God given to us, it transforms us in such a way that this is the overflow of, of who we are. And I think about this. Um, I don't know if you know this, but there's something major happening uh, Tuesday, um, you know, in our country. And and, and, and it, it always brings out the best in people, right? Obviously, I'm being a little bit facetious here. Not a little bit, a lot of bit. The election is something that will bring people to fighting words, 
And unfortunately, even fighting words among believers, among people who are in the same faith family, who are in the same families even, right? And so I would ask, just, are you going to be known as being a reasonable, tender, gracious person on social media as you're watching the news outlets unfold everything that's happening in the election? And even the coming days, my, my anticipation, we live in a broken world. We should not be surprised by the reaction that we're going to see de- depending on who wins or who doesn't win. We shouldn't be surprised by it. But as believers, as Christians, we have a greater hope. A greater hope for, than, than the candidates that we are going to be voting on. And so it should fuel us to be soft, to be tender, to be gracious with people. So then Paul then adds that the Lord is near. By the way, in this passage in verse 5, you know, there's some, I'm not going to say argument over this, but there is some, uh, people, people take this a little bit differently. Uh, th- there's some division over how this should be received. Is Paul, some will say, is Paul referring to the Lord's return? Meaning this is as soon, it's, it's temporal, or, or, or the Lord's presence. Uh, or, I guess, is it the Lord's presence? Is it that He's close by? Is he, that he's, he's with us, and we can find rest in that? So if He's speaking about the Lord's return, then perhaps He's saying something like, Jesus is returning, so live appropriately. Do you want Him to return and, and to find you being harsh or self-promoting? That's one way to take it. I don't think that's the best way. But if he's referring to the Lord's presence, which I think is the better interpretation because it makes sense with what is said before in the first, the, the, the sentence before and what he says and moving on, that he may just be calling their attention to the fact that God is close to the Philippians and he's ready to assist them in their pursuit of Christ's likeness. His nearness should inspire one to pray as the next verse commands us, right? That this idea of God's presence supplying sweet assurance to the believers can be found throughout the Bible. We see things like this, like the psalmist in Psalm 34. He says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, to the humble, to the tried of heart, right? The Lord is near, he's eager to help and to be with. So based on the context of how this thought flows in the following verse, I think it's better to see it more uh, of a way to bring hope and confidence to believers, reminding them that the Lord is there and is eager to help us in our weaknesses. And, 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 and what area of weakness does, does Paul zero in on? Well, it's anxiety. The writer of he- Proverbs says anxiety in a man's heart Weighs it down. Anxiety is like carrying a heavy rucksack. Those of you who spent some time in the military, you know what I'm talking about. You load it down with with weights and you go for long hikes or runs, whatever that may be. But but everybody, I think, can identify with this, this idea of laying down, just loading yourself up with a burden. This is what anxiety is. It's like having this huge pack and you carry it for miles and miles. In verses 6 and 7, where Paul, Paul we, can, we can relive um, 
he's, he's reminding us that we can relieve our anxiety through prayer and, uh, and experience God's unspeakable peace. And the reality is we can. We can. We can find that. But let's look closely at what Paul says about this common problem and the solution. So Paul's teaching here is very consistent with what we see in Matthew chapter 6. And last service, I, I tried to walk through this and realized I spent way too much time in it. So we're not going to spend that much time in Matthew chapter 6. But if you have time later on, go to verses 25 to 34, and you can see Christ's words and his exhortation towards, um, towards dealing with anxiety. And you'll find that Paul is echoing much of what the shepherd himself is saying. So I think it would be helpful, though, for us to ask ourselves, what is anxiety? John Piper says, anxiety seems to be an intense desire for something, accompanied by fear of the consequences of not receiving it. The desire normally involves something we really value, like money and relationships, or, or even the weight of the responsibilities that we have. Worry involves imagining the future in, in the worst case scenario and then freaking out about it. We can freak out about how we how we think our kids are going to turn out, or we can we can we can we can think about we can we can stress and have anxiety and worry about how we're going to pay the mortgage next year or what our job situation's gonna look like. To be clear, I think it'd be helpful to make the distinction. There are good um, what I would call alarms rather than worry. There are good worries, I guess you could say. What I mean by that is that the, the th- things that alarm us may be helpful. You know, we have alarm clocks, right? They're, they're, they're used for our good, to get us out of the bed in the morning, to, to let us know that the day has begun and it's, and it's time. And, or, so for instance, uh, the trash... I know the trash pickup in my neighborhood is on Wednesday. I usually have that alarm that, that I'm in a rhythm. I remember on, oh yeah, Wednesday, I, I got to put the trash out by the road, right? So those are good alarms, right? Uh, you may call those good anxieties or good burdens, right? Maybe you're prompted to go study for a test. Well, go study for the test, right? You, that's a good prompting, a good alarm. Paul mentions having anxiety for all the churches. 2 Corinthians 11, where he talks about he's anxious over being able to gather with them again. And he's anxious about seeing them grow spiritually. And and when he uses those terms in 2 Corinthians 11, it's actually the exact same word that he's using here when he tells us to not be anxious. So it could possibly be a little bit confusing, but I want to make the distinction. I think there are good anxieties. And I think there are not-so-good, sinful anxieties. And Paul, that meant that he was concerned for their spiritual future of the church, and that's, that's a good anxiety. So we too should have a burden for people's souls. Remember also, Jesus himself, he wept over, he had sorrow over the people of Jerusalem, but yet he was without sin. So the problem of anxiety doesn't mean we live unconcerned, dispassionate lives. Indeed, some worry is positive. 
This good anxiety calls us to perform our responsibilities, but the negative worry is different. I remember hearing a sermon once where the preacher described worry as carrying an alarm clock all day long, right? One without a snooze button. Like it's constantly ringing, constantly going off. And you just carry it with you and it's constantly, you know, grating at you, right? Maybe you live like that. Maybe you can identify with that. You live with self-defeating, persistent thoughts filled with worry. This type of anxiety that Jesus and Paul talk about is sin. We need to call it for what it is. It is sin. This form of worry is pagan. It's, it's, it could be called functional atheism. Because you're, you're living as though God doesn't exist and that, that he's not the all-sovereign ruler over all. Here's how one can live with a good form of anxiety and avoid sinful anxiety. You have to broaden your vision. You have to step back and look at the big picture as Paul could do. As we see him talk about in Romans 8, right? That God means for good all things that, 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 that for those who love him, right? And, and, and realize that no anxiety should immobilize us and squeeze the joy out of us because our, in, our, our eternal perspective is set on God's goodness. Right? The whole purpose of this sermon series has been about seeing the gospel in such a way that it stirs about within us an audacious joy. And so crushing anxiety happens when we believe lies. You might think of your worries like false prophets. They're telling you that God isn't good, that he isn't sovereign, that he doesn't care for you, that he's not wise. And so you need to listen to another prophet. Why, why were the Philippians anxious? And there are many causes of anxiety, and the Philippian church faced them. They faced external threats and internal squirrels and you know quarrels among them, right? So there are different things. They, they, they worried about Paul. They worried about Epaphroditus, the missionaries that they were representing and sending. And, and so we can surely identify with these causes, right? But um, is some external threat causing you to be anxious? Is there conflict within your faith family, your church, that's creating anxiety? Do you have a concern for someone that's creating anxiety? Are you worried about wealth and provisions? There may be a number of other causes, noise, or traffic, or interruptions, or isolations, or family crisis, or envy, and loneliness, and so much more. There are many threats to our peace. Reality is, if the gospel is about stirring within us audacious joy, anxiety is just the opposite. Anxiety is a joy killer. Anxiety will also make you self-absorbed. When you're consumed with your worries... 
you will be less likely to serve others wholeheartedly. Worry distracts us and keeps us from mission. It, it, it also robs you of peace, which Paul says can fill the heart of the praying believer. So all of these results are spiritual issues, and I'm not even going to mention or talk about at this time the, the physical issues that we face because of worry and anxiety. And, and there are a variety of ways that the culture and people around us tell us to deal with worry and anxiety. You know, some may talk about acupuncture, or some may talk about having a drink in moderation. Some may talk about exercise or aromatherapy or medicines and you know, deep breathing exercises. You may hear a lot of those things. And I would say, while God blesses many evidences and He shows us common grace through some of these means, we should start with what He said to us specifically about the issue at hand. We need God's word to know God's peace. And I would say, because it's obvious, Paul has been significantly shaped by Jesus. And Jesus' instruction on, and exhortation on anxiety from that passage from Matthew chapter 6. And Paul tells us three things about dealing with anxiety that they're, they're quite simple and, and reflective of the Savior's words. And by the way, this is not a main point. These three things that will show up here. These are not one of the main points. This helps construct and help you understand my second point. But the first is that we accept truth that you shouldn't have a heart filled with pagan anxiety. Verses, uh, verse 6. Paul simply says, don't worry about anything. It shouldn't be a part of our lives. He's merely echoing Jesus' three-time exhortation from Matthew chapter 6. Second, he tells us to cast out all of our cares upon God who cares for you. The first of the most basic remedies for anxiety is prayer. Paul says that peace comes only through prayer. He says uh, he says, relieve your anxiety in this way, but in everything, that's what he says in verse, the end of verse 6, but in everything, through prayer and petition and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He's telling us, don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Here's the antidote to anxiety. This is basic Christianity. But how are you doing in this discipline of unhurried, unhindered time with God. Do you know the peace that comes from being in God's presence? Paul says we should pray with thanksgiving and intercession. And, and I would say Paul's not denying that we will have hard times. But instead, he understands that in these hard times, we offer up our sacrifice of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for what he's done for us in the gospel. And by this, we can serve as occasions to, to offer our request to God. Remember where he's writing this from. One can be thankful as they reflect upon the manifold mercies of God, even while they're in prison. Or in a Nazi concentration camp. Or dealing with 2020. 
in the election. We can focus in and trust in the finished work of God and His promise-keeping nature. We should also offer up our petitions to God when, when in need. We, we should ask and keep on asking. And Jesus instructed us because our Father loves to give good gifts to His children. We see that in Matthew chapter 7. You can speak, you can seek Him, speak to Him about any care you have, from daily bread to going on mission, everything in between. Now think about this. Um, a couple months ago, uh, well, ever so often, uh, the pastors, um, Pastor Brandon, Pastor Chris, myself, Pastor John, we'll, we'll go grab lunch together, and sometimes we'll, we'll try to do something fun together. And we went bowling uh, a couple months ago, and I don't know if y'all know this about Pastor John, he's super competitive. And so if you, like, start pressing in, you start doing something, you know, decent, have bowled a good, sh- I don't know, you call it a shot? I don't know what you call it. You call it a shot? I don't know. A frame, frame. Well, a frame, yeah. I guess bowl a good frame. He's he starts to amp up. You can tell he's he's like itching. You know. So I think about the competition of this game, but I think about bowling in this way. Um, have you ever watched a bowler after he or she releases the ball? And oftentimes it's quite humorous. You know, people contort their body after they they roll it down the lane or they bowl the frame, right? Hoping that this side lean will somehow make the ball roll just a bit more, just to land in the pocket. The reality is, once you let go of the ball, nothing you do can change the direction or the course of that ball. Right? The idea is, you just let it go. It's going to do what, what, what it's set out to do, right? And in many ways, I know this illustration falls short in some ways, but in many ways, this is what Paul is calling us to, to do this with our burdens, release it to God, don't release it and then worry about it. He's calling us to cast our burdens on the Lord, and this promise that He will sustain us. Let God deal with it. And then he tells us to fight our anxiety with faith in God's promises. And the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This brings me to the second point I think would be helpful for us to get this morning, is that gospel-transformed people find strength in prayer in the midst of difficult days. Your source of power, your source of hope comes only from the one true living God who is the creator and sustainer of all things. And this God is eager to listen to your prayers. He loves you. He cares for you. So in difficult days and in good days, we bring praise and thanksgiving and we ask Him. And he's eager to respond. So Paul doesn't say that prayer will keep us from having problems. But rather, once we pray, we give our burden to God, we can have peace in the midst of the problem. He says that you can have uh, garrison, you can be garrisoned by the peace of God. 
like a soldier standing watch over a building. So the peace of God will guard our hearts when anxious thoughts and fears arise. Paul adds that this peace surpasses understanding. The world doesn't understand. Quite frankly, it's, it's kind of difficult to even explain. This sounds a bit like Ephesians chapter 3, when Paul talks about God's ability to do far more abundantly than we are able to ask or even think. One of the reasons God's peace is so extraordinary is that you can have it when it doesn't make sense to have it at all. So why should you have peace when you're in a Roman prison? It doesn't make sense unless God's peace really does flood your soul through prayer. And it does. The peace transcends understanding. This peace that only comes from the Lord, only comes in trusting the work of Christ, will transcend. Give us that transcending peace that's needed to make it in this world. So while exercise and medicine and a massage and other practices may, may have their place, they will never give you the type of peace Because this peace only comes from God. So how do we get it? How do we have this peace? It's only in knowing the Prince of Peace. It's only through a relationship with Christ. The one who can know what Paul's talking about. But if you are a Christian, then then fight your anxiety with God's promise of peace. He promises to to give you unexplainable peace when you pray. So believe this promise. Fight your anxiety by believing that He is with us. He's with you. And that the Lord will return for us. Paul mentions thanksgiving in everything in verse 6. How can we live thankfully all the time? One cause of thanksgiving is the fact that God keeps his promises. When God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. And we see this most explicitly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. One grows anxious when we fail to remember God's promises. So take God at his word. Believe that his peace will be given to those who seek his presence. Believe that he will uh, provide for us. uh, He will provide for his children. Fight fear with God's promises. Understand that this isn't prosperity theology. I mean, Paul was writing from a prison. The Philippians, the, the, the people of Philippi were, were poor and being persecuted. This is not prosperity theology. The promises aren't material possessions and earthly treasures, but something much deeper, much more important, much greater, namely God's peace, God's presence, and God's provisions to do kingdom work. That's why in Matthew chapter 6, he Jesus calls us to seek first the kingdom 
So the final issue that Paul addresses is the Christian's thought life. You know, so for a Christian to grow in Christ's likeness to Jesus, to grow more and more to, to be like Christ, they have to have a renewed mind. We see this in Romans 12 and Ephesians 4. So God has blessed his church with his word as the primary means of purifying our mind. Jesus prayed, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth, John 17. Psalm 139, David prayed for God to examine his thoughts, saying, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of, ever, of the everlasting in the, in the way of everlasting. David knew the real change involves a change of one's thoughts. So finally, brothers, picking up in verse eight, Philippians four, verses eight and nine, says he, this is final exhortation. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is any praise, dwell on these things, do what you have learned and received and heard and have seen in me, and the, and the God of peace will be with you. Here Paul is simply commending the need to think on admirable things. To think about which is true, not which of the things that are false. To think that which is honorable and not dishonorable. To think about what is just and not what is unjust. What is pure and not what is unpure. You, you get the idea. The reality is right thinking about God informs it informs our peace. It informs our joy. Right thinking about the gospel informs our joy. In fact, Wayne Grudem, I think, says the single greatest factor for the way we live our lives is what we believe about God. Think biblically and in a Christ-centered, Christ-exalting way about these and other things in the world. Reality is we see everything through a gospel lens. Which brings me to the final point I want to make this morning. God, gospel transformed people find their ultimate peace by thinking about and delighting in the good news of the gospel. Listen, the gospel is our only hope in life and death. And so this, this calling, this, this exhortation from Paul to delight, give praise and thanksgiving to God for what he has done. What is he calling us to give thanks for? What is the most pure and admirable and just and perfect thing we can think about? It's that Jesus came and lived a life that you and I could never live. And he died a death that you and I deserve to die. And he conquered an enemy that you and I could not conquer ourselves. And he's risen from the grave. The Bible says if we believe repent of our sins, to believe in the gospel, then we can be reconciled to God forever. And this is good news. This is what Paul is telling us to, to dwell on, to think about. In addition to thinking on praiseworthy thoughts, Paul also mentions following godly examples. Verse 9, he writes about 
what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the, and the God of peace will be with you. Verse 9. Once again, the theme of imitation appears, and so does the theme of peace. Emulate leaders that think holy thoughts. Emulate leaders that set their minds on their creator and redeemer. Watch them. Watch how they view creation, what they read, what they talk about, what they value. As a result, Paul says that the followers will know more of God's peace. Listen, he's telling the people at Philippi to, to, to follow me and what I'm doing. And Think about this. This is the man who's attributed to writing a third of the New Testament. This is a man who thought long and hard about what he was going to write about when he wrote that letter to the Romans. He thought long and hard about what he was going to write about when he wrote that letter to the church at Ephesus. These books that are packed with deep, doctrinal, rich truths about what God has done for them in the gospel. Paul's saying, emulate that. Emulate that. Prophet Isaiah wrote, You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord our God is an everlasting rock. Right? Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3 and 4. How true is this? Set your mind on praiseworthy things and give your burdens to God and know the perfect peace of God. That's what Paul's calling us to, exhorting us to, reminding us, giving us all these imperatives. These imperatives aren't come to church, put on your best clothes, put on your... No, he's telling you to remember. Remember what he has done. Focus on what God has done. Give praise and thanksgiving for the finished work of the gospel. And to conclude, Paul shepherds the church wisely and faithfully, urging them to be united, to rejoice in the Lord, to be gentle, to replace anxiety with God's peace through prayer, and to think on praiseworthy things. As we think on these things, we should remember the hope we have in Christ. Jesus never broke these commands and also solves all these problems. Listen, when you fail to pray, when you fail to know how to pray, the promise that we have, that Paul gives us in Romans 8, is that the Spirit, when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit is interceding for us in ways that are with groanings too deep for, for us to even comprehend and understand. Where we fail, Christ overcomes. Where we fail to live a life of peace and a life that's full of anxiety and worry, we have somebody who came and bore that sin for us in Christ. Christ is the reconciler. He is the gentle Savior. His salvation gives us a cause to rejoice. He removed our greatest fear and relieves our deepest anxieties through his victorious death 
and resurrection. He paid the penalty for those who sinned with their thoughts and grants them a new mind in return. Look at the Savior for your righteousness and your daily renewal and go imitate Him. As you do, the peace of God will be with you. Let's pray. Gracious God, we love you and we thank you, Father, for the finished work of Jesus Christ. God, we realize this call, the ending of Philippians chapter 4, is a call to peace. Peace among believers and being unified with other believers, but also peace in our own spirit, our own heart, and our own daily lives. God, we realize that that peace can only come only, only come from having a deep understanding and belief and rest in the finished work of the gospel. So God, I pray that you would stir us, God, to audacious joy. Audacious joy that responds in faith and that responds in prayer of thanksgiving and responds uh, in graciousness to one another. Father, so much we could take from this passage. God, I pray that you would stir within us now a deep love and appreciation for the gospel. God, we need your spirit. We need help. I myself am convicted by my own lack of and my own prayerlessness in my own life, God, I, I pray, Father, that, that you would stir within me a, a deep joy to take my worries and anxieties and needs to you, God. Help me to see you for who you are, and that is loving and caring and, and desiring to meet our needs, God. Transform our minds so that the things we pray for, the things we ask for, are informed by your word. They're informed by your heart. So, God, I pray that you would change us such a way so that we can glorify you with our lives to make more disciples, to make more disciples for your glory and for the joy of all peoples. God, with that we pray. Amen.